Uh, Hope 10.45, great to have you uh, part of church this morning. Uh, That is the passage we're looking at this morning, that one from Matthew chapter 5. Let me pray for us as we get going. Father, as we hear these striking words from the Sermon on the Mount today, help us to know who they come from. They come from Jesus, your Son, the good and gracious King. In his name we pray, Amen. Now, come on, be honest. Who doesn't like, when you see this on a screen, just some cute and cuddly bears? You just want to take one of these home, don't you? You just curl up with them on the couch. And you know, who doesn't? Anyone want to take one home today? You know, I had them out in the foyer. You take, you take your bear as you leave church. How about that kind of thing? Uh, well, can I tell you about Kelly Ann Waltz? Uh, who, she also had a pet bear. It's called Teddy. You know, that's also affectionate, isn't it? Um, and after years, no problems. Till one day, attacked her. <laughs> Killed her, in fact. Or how about Timothy Treadwell, a famous bear conservationist, who, get this, he lived for 13 summers with bears in the wild. No problem. Well, I guess that just takes one day to change things, doesn't it? Again, attacked. Killed by a bear. Uh, Anyone still want to take one of these home today? (laughs) You know? I mean, they seemed tame. They might seem friendly, But really, it takes just one day until their real nature is revealed. And there's a kind of um, savagery that lied beneath all along. You know, I think this is what Jesus is doing in this next section on the Sermon on the Mount. He's now going to be exposing the true nature of the human heart. Now, what's that true nature? Well, we've read about murder there. Is that what's going on? Well, yes, and not not really in one sense. Really, it's about the anger that lies beneath. And here's the horrifying thing. It's, It's that same anger that underlies murder. That same anger is also the very same thing that's in each of our hearts. It's in your heart. And most certainly, yes, I can tell you it is in my heart too. And yet when we might think about anger, we we might think about comic relief, comic rage, you could even call it. There might be characters like George Costanza from uh, Seinfeld who just, you know, goes goes off uh, at any person, has a scathing attack at everyone. Or Homer Simpson, I mentioned him a few weeks ago, always good for an illustration, uh, who just doesn't know how to control his anger. And we, we, we watch TV shows like this and we go, well, clearly their anger is for our amusement, So is my anger really such a big deal? Because isn't it just like my natural reaction to things? Isn't the problem actually that person, they made me do it. It's not me, it's them. So here's the question for us this morning. Are we horrified by what lies beneath in our hearts? And in this case, the anger that we can have towards other people. Now, as we hear that and as we keep going, you're not really going to be tempting for us, is that we, we, we think about all, all this and what comes to mind is, ah, I know who really needs to hear this. It's, it's not me, it's, it's, it's that person. You're, you're nudging a spouse perhaps or you've got a glance across someone across the other side of the room. But as soon as we start doing that, I'm going to say we have already, already, already greatly underestimated what lies beneath in each of our own hearts. So can I urge you this morning, don't think about anybody else's heart. Just think about your own. 
Mike said last week that these weeks, today and the next couple, as we work through this next bit of the Sermon on the Mount, they are going to be hard. But as we prayed, these are the words of our good and gracious King. And to get to the heart of the matter, we must listen to the one who is centre stage. Now, I'm not talking about me here on this stage. I'm not even talking about good old Tay-Tay, okay? Here's my obligatory Taylor Swift comment for the day. Uh, Taylor Swift, hundreds of thousands of people, Melbourne, Sydney, have come to see her concerts and, and she is centre stage. I mean, it's her concert, right? Rightly so. It's all about her. But on a far grander scale, Jesus comes along and puts himself centre stage of all of history. And he puts himself centre stage of the whole Old Testament scriptures. You might remember last week, verse 17, Jesus hadn't come to, he says, to destroy the law of the prophets, but what? To fulfil them. He's saying, it's all about me. And so, having come and claimed centre stage... Jesus now, as the Sermon on the Mount continues, he gives a bunch of examples of how people misunderstood the Old Testament commands. And as he does that, he's going to show a couple of things. He's going to show the authority of his teaching. He's going to show what true kingdom righteousness looks like. Although really, as he does that, it's going to be exposing just how far gone we are. So he begins with verse 21 in this section for today, as we had read earlier. Let me read that. Keep your Bibles open. Keep it up on your phone so you can be reading along. But verse 21, he says, You have heard it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. And there's the sixth commandment. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And did you, that, that little... Uh, that sort of phrase there, or two phrases, he repeats five more times in this section uh, of, of the rest of chapter 5. He says, you've heard it was said this, but I tell you that. You've heard it was said it was this, but I tell you that. And he keeps doing this several, several times. What is Jesus doing here? Now, this is really important for us to understand. Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament. He's not updating it with a new interpretation. No, he's correcting what others have said about these commands. He's correcting the distorted teaching that people had heard. And the way he'll correct it is, in fact, by teaching what was always at the heart of these commands. Because you see, the religious elite of Jesus' day, the scribes, the Pharisees, they had missed what the law was actually all about. They wanted to make it doable. They wanted to be able to just go, okay, here are the outward actions. Let me just tick those boxes. Just tick those boxes easily as you tick a box on your connect slip, right? Done. You know? And then you might be thinking, well, actually, didn't the Pharisees add all these extra laws? It's like 613 in, um, in total that Mike shared last week. Yes. Doesn't that mean that they took things extra seriously? Well, kind of yes and no, because you know what happens if you add more to it? That just gives you an excuse to find a loophole around it. They had forgotten what the heart of God's commands were. And I think that's why Jesus chose this particular command do not murder as the first one to address. 
Because you can imagine the Pharisee thinking, do not murder? <laughs> Easy. <laughs> I can just tick that box straight away. Never murdered anyone. But the problem with that was, even if they didn't murder, Jesus said that they were still giving themselves a license to kill by what was actually going on in their hearts. So look now again at verse 21. I'll read that again. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You see, the commandment not to murder was always about so much more than whether the final action was actually committed. Because ultimately, murder for, for Jesus, he says, it's, it's not a crime of the hand, it's a crime of the heart. And where there is anger towards another, this commandment has been broken. So, so church, let me ask you this. What happens in our heart when that party next door just seems to keep going on and on and on and on into the night? What happens in our heart when that car dangerously cuts, off, uh, cuts you off in front of you? When someone doesn't pull their weight at work? What happens in our heart when someone wrongs you and says something about you? What, what happens in our heart when family members, when kids just will not listen? What happens in our heart even when someone just has just, a, just that, that little annoying thing, which shouldn't be a big deal, and yet it is? What happens in our heart? Christian writer Christopher Ash, he puts it this way here in a really helpful book, The Heart of Anger, by the way, if you want to think more about this. But he says, anger is the drawn sword of human relationships. It's out. It's up. Before the sword strikes with a sharp word or violent deed, it is first drawn. So even before anything happens, our heart already has this posture of Hostility, a drawn sword, as if it were ready to strike. It's ready to go. That's what already is happening in our hearts before anything plays out. And I'll tell you what, I find this hard. I, I find this really hard. And uh, when Mike was actually uh, preparing the preaching roster uh, you know, a few months ago, and, uh, and, and I saw, okay, this is the week that I'm on, and here's the passage, I was like... Ah, great. Because <laughs> I, I know what's involved in preaching, and that is to preach to others, I actually need to preach to myself first. And, uh, and that actually, when I told uh, Rachel a few weeks back what my next sermon was on, the passage, you know what she said? Bummer. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you what, even in this passage, with this passage in my head, as I've been thinking about it, and it's been ringing in my ears this week, you think that would, being aware of it would help out. But boy, anger's been a struggle. <laughs> It just comes so easily, just sits below the surface and then comes out, no, what? <laughs> and there can be certain things that make it harder as well, tiredness and stress and, and little people pushing buttons you didn't realise you had. I'm sure I'm not the only one here that experiences that. And yet at the same time, it can be so easy to try to justify. If you ask a father why he's angry all the time... Often he won't tell you about the impatience or the selfishness in his heart. He'll just say, the kids are driving me crazy. If you ask the, an employee why they snap at work, they'll perhaps just say, it's just my boss. They just 
always pull the worst out of me. If you ask a, an older woman why she's mean, she may not tell you it's perhaps because of bitterness that has captured her heart. No, she may just talk about the ways that she didn't get what she deserved in life. We've got to remember that the, the people, the places, the situations, they don't cause us to sin. They are just where the sin of our hearts gets revealed. And usually that's because of our ego, our pride gets in the way, which actually is a big difference between the, the anger that Jesus has, and we read of that in the Bible, and our own anger, right? Because our own anger is bound up with our kind of inflated ego, but not so with Jesus. Jesus isn't trying to protect some idol within his heart like we do. When he gets angry at the Pharisees, when he got angry at the, at the, the temple, and, you know, he went all out. He was tossing and turning tables and all that sort of stuff. But it was out of a pure concern for God's honour and a genuine love for the spiritual welfare of others. It was a pure, righteous anger. But that is something we cannot claim for ourselves. So sometimes we try to justify our anger. Sometimes we try to hide it. Although you can see in the eyes usually, you know, if only looks could kill. <laughs> sometimes we, we might do something. Sometimes we might say things. Like verse 22, where Jesus then talks about one person insulting another, calling him fool, calling him moron. But whether we can hide it from ourselves or hide it from others, we cannot hide it from God. Because he, he looks and he scrutinizes our hearts. It's exposed to him. And he judges our hearts. And this is the thing. We don't have to have committed the act of murder to have the heart of a murderer. Because Jesus says it's the same sinful heart. It, it does it all. Like we, we each have murderous hearts in us. And I know that, that, that sounds full on, doesn't it? You may never thought about yourself in that kind of way. But we must not underestimate what our hearts are truly capable of given the, well, the right or wrong circumstances. And if I'm honest, sometimes the things that just pop into my head out of nowhere, it's frightening. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> I've never had that thought before, but bam, it's there. Uh, you may have heard of a novelist, uh, Agatha Christie, uh, wrote murder mysteries like Poirot. Anyone sort of watch those TV shows as they come up? And, and uh, Well, here's one of the uh, 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 books here. And um, let me just read part of Poirot. He's a private detective. Uh, and what he says as he wraps up uh, one of his cases... He says, in everybody, there arises from time to time the wish to kill, though not the will to kill. How often have you felt or heard others say, she made me so furious, I felt I could have killed her. I could have killed B for, for saying so and so. I was, also, uh, I was so angry, I could have murdered him. Is this sounding up? Uh close to home, hauntingly familiar? Are we horrified by what is lurking within our hearts? And you might go, well, hang on a second. Is it really that bad? Isn't this just being a little bit dramatic? 
But again, look what Jesus says. He's the one. These are his words. He's saying it. He says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. What judgment is that? He spells it out at the end of verse 22. Whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. Whoever says, you moron, will be subject to to what? To hellfire. To, to, To hell. These are Jesus' words. They're not mine. They're his words. He's not bluffing here. In fact, he's being loving. He's warning angry hearts, insulting words. They are enough to deserve hell. So where does this leave us this morning? Well, as we reflect on our own heart, even in just this past week, we may very very well realize we are in deep trouble. And there's nothing we can do about this guilt. So what do we do? Well, I guess we just are left to despair. Well, yes, if we forget how Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount. So just look back, chapter 5, verse 3. How does he begin the Sermon on the Mount? The poor in spirit are blessed. The poor in spirit are blessed. What does that mean again? You might remember from a few weeks ago when Mike shared this. Uh, To be poor in spirit is to realize your spiritual state before God. It's to be humble, repentant before God because you know your sin. But the poor in spirit are blessed as well. Do you know that? How? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God's kingdom is for those who know they don't deserve it. And I wonder, do you feel like that today? Do you feel like Jesus has exposed your heart once more? I I know I really don't deserve to be in God's kingdom. But Jesus says that's who his kingdom is for. And he came not just to speak these words, but also to do something about it. Like, Do you remember from the beginning of Matthew's gospel? um, Speaking speaking of Jesus' birth, why why has Jesus come? To save his people from their sins. Jesus already knows what lies beneath in our hearts, which is why he came to do something about it. He came to go all the way to the cross. He came to bear the punishment that we deserve, that we might be forgiven. And as Peter would say, right in his letter a bit later on in the New Testament, when Jesus suffered, did he make threats back? No. And as Jesus was crucified, did he resort to vengeful anger? No. He, he, he uttered these words, these incredibly gracious words as he hangs from the cross. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. You see, Jesus was the only one who has perfectly kept God's commands, not murdered in his heart. And that means that he's the only one who is fit to be our saviour. Friends, hear me when I say, despite the horrors of our hearts, no one is beyond salvation. No person who is struggling with anger is beyond salvation No murderer is beyond salvation. 
You can be saved. Nothing is too much for Jesus. How wonderful then is the grace of God. And this is a big part of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. This point, simple. We need Jesus. But if we do trust in Jesus' death, if we are forgiven members of his kingdom, well then it is clear that our concern must now be to obey the king and to change in these areas of which he speaks. Like now we will not take lightly the command, do not murder. We know what is at the heart of it. We won't just think it's for other people. We now think, well, my heart, my attitudes, my thoughts, my words, my actions, I need to address them. I need to live a new, wholehearted way for Jesus. And from verse 23, Jesus gives a couple of uh, little illustrations to picture this, to picture what repentance can look like and what we might say through peacemaking and, and your repentance you might know is simply you know it's this activity this action of turning back to god and in both cases both these little illustrations here i think it's it's the same point there's a great priority to this there's a great urgency to this so verse 23 the first little illustration jesus says so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother fellow believer has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer your gift. Right. So, so here's a picture. You're in the temple in Jerusalem. It's a big deal to come to the temple and, and to offer your gift, to offer your, your animal uh, uh, sacrifice, the lamb, the goat, the, uh, the, the dove, pigeon, whatever it is. Uh, and, and it's a big journey as well, particularly for those who have come out of Jerusalem. There's nowhere else... To, to, to offer your, your offering. There's just the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. So Jesus at the moment, he's up speaking to the people in Galilee. That's way up to the north. So that those Galileans, when they had to go to the temple, it's quite the trek. And, and uh, they would have had to you know, organize their annual leave, get all their Airbnb places, booked ahead. Like This is the sort of you know, big deal that it is to go to the temple. But then Jesus says, even if the knife is at the throat of the animal, if there you remember your brother has something against you, now what do you do? Well, it's a matter of priority, Jesus says. First thing you do when you get back to Galilee a few days later is make sure you sort it out then. No, no, he doesn't say that, does he? It's even much more urgent than that. He says, leave your gift right there on the altar and then... Go, go be reconciled to your brother, then come back. Doesn't matter what that takes. Right? Here's the priority. There's an urgency to sorting out this stuff. So it's far more important than, than doing just the, the, the religious duty. As Samuel says back in the Old Testament, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. What God desires is in the heart. So there's kind of the, a religious type um, illustration. And now Jesus gives a legal metaphor. Verse 25. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him. 
or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Now, you see, in those days, uh, if you couldn't pay your debts, then uh, you'd be thrown into like a debtor's prison uh, until the amount was owed. And, of course, the irony is, if you're in prison, you're not really earning anything. You can't pay it back, so that's generally where you stayed. Now, people have come to, I think, read a lot into this, this little uh, illustration here. But I think, again, it's just a simple point. Jesus is stressing the urgency of reconciliation. Judgment is looming. looming. There are consequences if it's not dealt with. Justice will be done. So act now. Don't delay. Lest we grow comfortable. Lest we grow cold with our sin. And be found unrepentant. So what are we to do with these illustrations? Well, one thing is that repentance is more than just saying sorry to God. Yes, there ought to be a heartfelt expression to God as we repent, but it's more than that. Because Jesus, don't he, he doesn't say, if you're at the altar and there you realize your brother has something against you, pray. No, he says, go, be reconciled to your brother. And he doesn't say, when you're there in the court, work it out with the judge. No, he says, work it out with your adversary, your accuser. I think there's the challenge. I think we find it so much easier, certainly I do, so much easier to say sorry to an unseen God than to apologize to my brother or sister face to face. Because what is that prayer of sorrow to God worth if I'm not willing to be reconciled with the person I know I've wronged? Now, none of that is to diminish the place of prayerful uh, 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 confession, but all to say how very practical that repentance is as well. Now, what would that mean for us? Well, here's just a, a, a few thoughts, what it could mean. And I'm, I'm going to focus on a church context, a church family. Uh, it could have far uh, wider-reaching um, implications for other people in our lives as well, but for now, a church context. For some of us, this will all mean we need to give an apology. It might mean finding that person straight after church and apologising them. It might mean going straight past the jam donuts, going straight past the the barista line and finding that person to apologise, to seek forgiveness, to be reconciled. You, you may have even got a sense from someone or have got an inkling yeah, that, that you have done something that has hurt them, that has wronged them, but you're not entirely sure of the full picture or, or hasn't quite made sense. Now, either we can you know, resist and pretend it doesn't happen or that it's not a big deal, or we can go in humility and say, brother, sister, if I've sinned against you, please help me to understand. Because I know that what is important to me that, that this here is both important to me and our king. So let's talk about it. Or maybe if it's another Sunday and you're driving here down Heath Road and you're pulling into uh, you know, the, the, the car park, the driveway, and there you remember that a sister has something against you, 
do a U-turn in the car park and drive straight back out and go and sort it out. <laughs> Unless they're actually a sister here at church, and then you can, you know, but, but that, that might look confusing to our parking crew, but it doesn't matter. It won't be confusing to you because you know what needs to be done. And sadly, it might surprise you, maybe it doesn't surprise you, just how many people in churches generally don't speak to one another. And that, that's not because the church is not welcoming, but because for some perhaps major reason or even some petty reason, she sits on that side, he sits on that side, and never shall they speak. Months, years longer. Shortly, we are going to be sharing in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to be celebrating, we're going to be remembering the sacrifice that Jesus has made once and for all. And as we do so, we do this as a family. It's a family meal. We do it as brothers and sisters in Christ. We do it expressing and living out our communion with God our Father and our communion with one another. But if sitting there in a moment you know that you should not in good conscience participate in it because there is something unresolved between you and another, then it is appropriate to hold off. That is appropriate to remain seated. And then go after and sort that out so that you can be reconciled with that brother or sister in Christ. Church, we cannot worship with grudges. And if I know that I've wronged someone, if I'm harboring something in my heart that is festering away and in my pride I just won't do anything about it, I can sing till the cows come home, but the Lord won't hear it. Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe it is quite literally you need to pay back what is owed. But whatever it is, what I want to say today is do it quickly. Do it quickly because it is vital that it gets done. Why would we do such a thing? Because it is God who has made peace with us through the blood of his Son. And unless we get that, there's no reason for us to change. But if we do, that changes everything. It changes how we live, it changes how I relate with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as Jesus says it was, yeah, in chapter 5, verse 9, earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 9, the peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Well, let me pray now as our band comes up. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your convicting word of truth concerning the depth of our sin. Thank you for your incredible, glorious grace. Thank you that your blood has washed away our sin. Thank you that we can live new lives, renewed relationships. Thank you from the depths of our heart. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.